Perhaps the most deadly disease in human history is one called variola, also known as smallpox. With a mortality rate of around 30% among adults and 80% among infants, smallpox has claimed the lives of literally hundreds of millions of people throughout history. Uh, during the Antonine Plague, for instance, smallpox claimed the lives of somewhere between 3.5 and, and 7 million people over the span of about 7 years in the late 2nd century. In 18th century Europe, 400,000 people died annually of smallpox, and one-third of those who survived went blind. According to historians, smallpox introduced by Spanish explorers wiped out up to 90% of the Native American population in the Americas in the early stages of European colonization. Again, this is just an incredibly dangerous, incredibly deadly disease. In fact, it's estimated that smallpox claimed the lives of 300 to 500 million people in the 20th century alone. Just for some perspective, that's four times more than the death totals of World War I and World War II combined. Again, just in the 20th century from smallpox. As late as 1967, the World Health Organization estimated that there were 10 to 15 million cases of smallpox globally per year, with about 2 million of those cases resulting in death. Think about that. As recently as 1967, smallpox was claiming the lives of 2 million people per year. Again, for some perspective, that's the equivalent of the entire Kansas City metropolitan area dying from smallpox every year. And yet I doubt that anyone in here today fears that they might one day die of smallpox. About 40 years ago, smallpox was killing four times as many people per year as breast cancer. And yet today, there's no Smallpox Awareness Month because no, no one is afraid of dying from smallpox. And why is that? Well, the reason is because in 1796, an English doctor by the name of Edward Jenner developed a vaccination against smallpox, the first vaccine actually in human history. Jenner realized that, that milkmaids who had contracted cowpox, which is a disease that's very closely related to smallpox, these milkmaids never contracted smallpox. And so Jenner performed an experiment. He inserted uh, the pus of a milkmaid with cowpox into the arm of a healthy 8-year-old boy, and then he administered a weakened form of smallpox to the boy, and the boy didn't get sick. The immunity that the boy had built up through his exposure to cowpox made him impervious to exposure to smallpox. And thus, the smallpox vaccine was born. Originally, due to an inability to stably store the vaccine, it had to be administered from arm to arm, and this meant that it spread slowly. However, even still, one country after another after another gradually eradicated the disease. The last reported case of smallpox in the United States actually occurred in 1949. As medical technology advanced, a more portable version of the vaccine developed, and in 1967, the World Health Organization launched a campaign to eradicate smallpox globally. By 1980, just 13 years later, they had achieved their goal. Smallpox, as we know it today, is virtually extinct. In fact, today, the only known forms of smallpox in existence are in storage in heavily guarded laboratories in Atlanta and Moscow. We have advanced our fight against what is perhaps the most deadly disease in human history to the point that we could completely annihilate it from the face of the earth if we wanted to. This is the genius and beauty of vaccines. By taking a, a weakened form of a disease and intentionally administering it to the human body, we're able to use the body's ability to develop immunities to disease against that disease so that we never contract it. That's why we don't worry about smallpox today. By exposing millions and millions of people to cowpox, we've made it essentially impossible for smallpox to spread. And so this disease that killed hundreds of millions of people throughout history is basically now dead itself. Vaccines killed it. They prevented its ability to spread. Well, unfortunately, it would appear that the gospel's influence is also currently declining in the West. And I think if we were to ask ourselves why this is happening, then we would have to conclude that it's for very much the same reason that we don't see children contracting smallpox today. I mean, I've shared these figures before, but according to Gallup polls, 
Weekly church attendance has declined by about 20% in the past 15 years. Church membership has fallen at roughly the same clip. This coincides with the fall in the number of professing born-again Christians. That number has fallen by around 15% in the past 15 years, just from from 44% of Americans to about 38% today. Meanwhile, the number of Americans who describe themselves as non-religious has tripled in the past 25 years, from about 8% in 1990 to 25% a day uh, today, according to Pew Research. That figure includes more than one-third of adults between 18 and 29, which is the highest number of non-religious young adults that we've seen in American history. There just seems to be this precipitous decline in virtually every significant statistical marker that would seem to indicate the church's influence on society. And if you take a step back and you ask yourself, why is this happening? Why is it that the church's influence, the gospel's influence is declining At least one of the reasons, if not the major reason, it would seem, is because our society has become increasingly inoculated against the gospel with diluted or weakened strains of the gospel. In fact, this is apparent, for example, when you look at the percentage of the church that holds to a biblical worldview. If you've been attending our Worldview Sunday School class over the past few weeks, then you've already heard me share statistics like the ones I'm about to share, although the figures that I'm about to give you have been updated. But according to Barna Research, if you take the percentage of the church that holds to a biblical worldview, and just to be clear, so you know that Barna isn't playing fast and loose with the definition of a biblical worldview, according to the figures that I'm about to give you, someone who believes in a biblical worldview, according to this poll, is defined as someone who believes, quote, that absolute moral truth exists, that the source of moral truth is the Bible, That the Bible is accurate in all the principles it teaches, that eternal spiritual salvation cannot be earned, that Jesus lived a sinless life on this earth, that every person has a responsibility to share their religious beliefs with others, that Satan is a living force, not just a symbol of evil, and that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful maker of the universe who still rules the creation today. So again, to be clear, that's what we mean by someone who believes in a biblical worldview according to this poll that I'm about to share with you. In other words, it's not like they're, they're splitting hairs with the term, of, uh, the term biblical worldview, the existence of absolute truth, right? The infallibility of Scripture, salvation by grace through faith, the sinlessness of Christ, the responsibility of Christians to share their faith, the omnipotence and omniscience of God. This is all pretty basic stuff, right? Well, according to a 2005 poll, Barna says that when you poll Christians according to this standard, then only 8% of all Protestants and only half of all evangelicals hold to a biblical worldview. That's pretty stunning. Only half of all people who would call themselves evangelical would also say that the things I just listed are all true. For example, according to a 2009 poll among born-again Christians, who according to Barna are Christians who say that they have, quote, made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is important to their life today, and that they are certain they will go to heaven after they die only because they confessed their sins and accepted Christ as their Savior. Among these types of Christians... Only 79% firmly believe that the Bible is accurate in all the principles it teaches. Only 62% strongly believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. Only 46% believe in absolute moral truth. And only 47% strongly reject the notion of earning salvation through their deeds. That's among born-again Christians. That's stunning. And it gets worse. According to a 2004 poll among Protestant pastors... So these are the ones in leadership. These are the ones who supposedly know the most about the faith and are instructing others in it. Among all Protestant pastors, only 51%, just over half, possess a biblical worldview. The denomination with the highest number of pastors with a biblical worldview, by the way, was the Southern Baptist Convention at 71%. And while I guess that should encourage us as a Southern Baptist church to know that we're leading the field there, at the same time, that still only means that less than three in four SBC pastors are capable of teaching their church a biblical worldview. That's not encouraging. So clearly, clearly the church has been infected with a diluted form of the gospel. I mean, if only 62% of born-again Christians can say that they strongly believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, and only 47% strongly reject the notion of salvation by one's deeds... Well, then obviously the 49% of Protestant pastors who don't hold a biblical worldview have had a pretty negative effect on the church's comprehension of the gospel. 
And yet, and yet, according to the same that same 2005 Barna poll, the one where only eight percent of Protestants hold a biblical worldview, according to that poll, nine out of ten adults, all adults, 88 percent, say that they feel quote accepted by God. So only eight percent of Protestants believe in a biblical worldview. Less than ten percent believe in basic doctrinal truths that I think it would be fair to say are pretty essential to faith in Jesus Christ, and yet over 90% of all adults feel accepted by God. That's significant. You have a substantial number of Christians out there who don't believe in the foundational components of the gospel, and yet they still feel accepted by God. And it's not just them. That's 90% of all adults who feel this way, not just Protestants. Think about that. You have this, this growing unbelief. Today, somewhere around one in four people do not describe themselves as religious in any way. That's a rise from less than 1 in 10 in 1990. Only 5% of adults actually subscribe to a biblical worldview. That's just 1 in 20. And yet, in spite of that, 9 out of 10 still think that they are accepted by God. Now, I don't think we can necessarily pinpoint how this is happening. I don't think you can necessarily point to one particular reason or another and say this is why so many believe they're accepted by God while at the same time rejecting essential Christian doctrines. But... At the same time, should it really surprise us that this is so when less than half of all born-again Christians believe in absolute moral truth or that it's impossible to earn salvation by being a good person? Should it surprise us that so many can reject Christ when so many Christians are willing to basically affirm that, fit, that, that uh, unbelief, that they're unwilling to affirm that, G, that belief in Jesus or faith in the Scripture, what it says about Jesus is essential to salvation? I mean, most of the church itself doesn't believe that faith in Jesus is essential to salvation, so why would the world feel compelled to believe in Christ in order to feel accepted by God? So if you were to ask me, why do you think that the church's influence is declining in our society? What is it, why does it seem like for... All the avenues that we have to proclaim the gospel to others today, what with radio programs and podcasting and social media, why does it seem like with, even with this increased capacity to proclaim the gospel to mass groups of people, why is it that the gospel actually seems to be less effective today than it was several years ago? This is where I point. I'd say that just as the smallpox vaccine effectively eradicated the presence of smallpox in the, in the modern world, so also the introduction of a weakened gospel is subverting the spread and influence of the true gospel in the West. Just like a vaccine gives you just enough of a virus to make you immune to the real deal, that's what's happened with these weakened strains of the gospel. They're telling people enough about God's grace to make them think that they have a relationship with God without actually leading them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. In last week's message, we saw that this is the danger of false religion. In Matthew 23, Jesus launches into this incredibly harsh rebuke of the scribes and Pharisees who have so obviously rejected the truth that Jesus has been teaching in this latest exchange in the temple. And in verses 13 to 15, Jesus begins His rebuke by pointing to the result of their hypocritical teaching, declaring, this is Matthew 23, 13 to 15. If you haven't already turned there, go ahead and read along with me. This is what Jesus says. He says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees did. They shut people out of the kingdom of heaven. And they did this not simply through their public rejection of Jesus, but also by their insistence on an external works-driven righteousness. That's actually what Jesus is about to condemn in full force in the rest of Matthew 23. They had a wrong definition of righteousness, and they went and they made proselytes and converted them to that standard of righteousness. Jesus says that when they did this, they didn't just shut them out of the kingdom of heaven. They actually made these proselytes twice as much a child of hell as themselves. Now, we noted last week that by this, Jesus doesn't mean that the proselytes were guilty of twice as much sin and therefore worthy of twice as much punishment as the scribes and the Pharisees. Rather, the idea is that they've been brought into a state where it's now harder to redeem them than even the scribes and the Pharisees. 
And the reason for this is because now not only does the proselyte have some form of religion, some semblance of truth that gives them some hope for salvation without actually saving them as a result of the Pharisees' efforts to convert them. Not only has the proselyte received this false religion that's going to make them, quote, feel accepted by God, even while God's wrath, God's wrath remains on them. Not only this, but they believe that what the Pharisees told them is true. Remember, the Pharisees realize that they're rejecting the truth. That's part of their hypocrisy. They know enough to know that they're teaching a lie. And so they're at least still in the position to acknowledge the lie and, and repent of it. The proselyte, though, they don't have that same opportunity. They actually believe what the Pharisees are telling them is true. They're trusting their leadership that what the Pharisees are telling them about God's Word is true. So they don't have that same opportunity to repent. They, they're deceived at a level that the Pharisees are not, and this seals them in their unbelief. This is what Jesus means when He says that the proselyte is twice as much a child of hell as the scribe and the Pharisee. Again, this is the danger of false religion. It condemns a person. And this is why Jesus speaks so harshly against the religious leaders in this chapter. They're not just shutting people out of the kingdom of heaven with their lies. They're actually locking them out and throwing away the key. And so the question that we're asking ourselves this week, and we'll continue to ask this question next week as well, is what false gospels might we have believed in? I mean, we live in one of the most churched areas in the entire world. And on one hand, this means that we are more likely to hear the gospel here than perhaps in any other place on the planet at the same time, it also means that we're more likely to hear and believe in a false gospel as well. Jesus warned about this in the parable of the tares. He said that until the time of his return, the enemy is going to sow tares, false seed, alongside the good seed. And this seed is going to grow up alongside the good seed in an effort to undermine the harvest. So we can expect that wherever true believers are proclaiming the gospel to great effect, there are also going to be false apostles spreading false gospels in order to undermine their efforts. And this is a very dangerous situation to be in, because if you happen to believe in one of these false gospels, then your, worst state has, your, your, your latter state has become worse than the first. And so what we're doing today is identifying and evaluating several false gospels that seem to be particularly prevalent in our neck of the woods. In other words, we're not going to be dealing very much with Matthew 23, 13 to 15 this morning. We've got a sense of that passage and what Jesus is saying there last week. Now we're dealing with the implications of that text by asking what other Gospels are out there which are false, which are misleading, deceiving, damning. And the question that I want you to ask as we evaluate these Gospels together is, in which Gospel have I believed? It's possible that you've been deceived by a false gospel, that you have been immunized to the truth with a half-truth, a weakened strain of the gospel. What you need to do is evaluate whether or not that's happened. And just so you know, that's not something I can answer for you. Only you can really know the answer to that question. So you need to evaluate your own motivations and thoughts in, in terms of why you believe as I present these alternative Gospels. Also, I want you to recall that last week we noted that even if we've believed in the true Gospel, it's still possible for these false Gospels to affect our thinking as believers as we try to grow in our sanctification. A simple lack of discernment can do that. It can allow multiple strains of false religion to mix in with true and genuine faith. So even if you're saying to yourself this morning, I know that I believe the true Gospel, even still you need to be asking yourself, have I let my guard down and allowed one of these false Gospels to infiltrate my thinking? Is my understanding of the Gospel mixed with both truth and error? Of course, that's what makes false Gospels so effective. What makes them so effective is that they aren't entirely false. They're partially true. And so the way I want to approach this is first to define the false Gospel. I want to, I'm going to simply explain what the false Gospel is as we go through this list here in just a moment. And then I want to discuss what's appealing about that gospel. I want to discuss even what it gets right. And then after that, we'll talk about what these gospels get wrong. And just as a heads up, I'm going to lump these false gospels into two categories based on what they get wrong. First, there are goal-oriented false gospels. 
These are false gospels that train their hope on the wrong object. In other words, they may be right in terms of how a person obtains the hope that they communicate, but they're wrong in terms of what that hope is. Uh, To put it bluntly, they sell a product that Jesus never intended to sell. They're false in that sense. These are different from means-oriented false gospels. A means-oriented false gospel is a gospel that gets the hope right, but they're wrong in terms of how you obtain that hope. In other words, they're selling the right product, but they're doing it at the wrong price, so to speak. They're false in that sense. And so we'll talk about the appeal of each of these gospels. We'll discuss what they get right and what they get wrong. And of course, the goal in all of this is to expose these false gospels as the sham that they are. Additionally, I would think that the true gospel is also going to become increasingly evident as we progressively define what it is not. I've counted nine false gospels in total. That's a long list. Um, we're only really going to have time to discuss two of these false gospels today. We'll discuss some more next week. Please know in advance that I by no means, no means think that these nine false gospels make up a complete list of what's out there, but these are the ones that I think are pretty prevalent, uh, especially where we live. I'd actually encourage you as we go to try to think of other false, go- false gospels that you may have encountered Uh, that I've not named here, and we can hopefully discuss these in the coming weeks as well on Sunday evening. But without further delay, let's go ahead and get started. We're going to start with the goal-oriented false gospels. We're going to discuss two of those today. So again, these are false gospels that are selling a different product than the one that Jesus intended. The first of these is one that's bashed pretty regularly, and I doubt that too many in here are really tempted to fall sway to this gospel for that reason. But I think it's worth mentioning, because if you can understand the flaws in this false gospel, then you'll be better equipped to perceive the flaws in the second one that we're going to discuss today, which unfortunately is very prevalent and has captured huge swaths of even historically orthodox churches. That's really why we're, we're, we're spending our time on this first false gospel to set up our discussion of the second one. So kind of think of it that way. And this, this first false gospel is this. Number one, the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. You've probably already heard of this so-called gospel before. But just in case you haven't, I want to just briefly define it for you. Uh, in a nutshell, the prosperity gospel says that God always intends for His people to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. It's right there in the name, right? God means for His people to prosper. That's the prosperity gospel in a nutshell. Basically, the idea behind this gospel is that as image bearers of God, human beings have been given power over the creation to use for their own purposes. But because of sin, we've lost that power. Now, depending on the particular iteration of this theology, this may be because of the curse that came through the fall, or maybe because of our own lack of faith, which results from our sin, or even because we become enslaved to the power of Satan. Whatever the case, what this gospel says is that at the cross, Jesus overcame whatever it is that hinders us from exercising this power over the creation. So now we have this power in and of ourselves, so to speak, to overcome sickness and poverty because Jesus has returned that power to us. All that we must do is now exercise that power. Uh, this gospel often emphasizes what's called positive confession. Basically, you speak what you desire into existence. It also tends to correspond to a person's prosperity with the measure of their faith because, again, God always desires his children to prosper. So if someone is not prospering, it's often said it's because they're not exercising the right kind of faith, or at least not enough faith. Again, understand, according to the prosperity gospel, sin and faithlessness is the root of human suffering. And that's not just in a general sense, that's actually in a very specific sense as well. The reason, In other words, the reason why you specifically are experiencing hardship is because you lack faith or you are in sin. And again, the reason for this is because Jesus has given us power over the creation at the cross. That's what His atonement accomplished according to this gospel. And so if you're not experiencing that kind of power over the creation, it isn't because God hasn't given it to you. He's given it to you. The problem is you're not accessing it. It's your lack of faith. Now, again, there are many different iterations of this kind of gospel, but if you've listened to the likes of Kenneth Copeland or Benny Hinn or Joyce Meyer or Joel Osteen, 
This is the gospel that they sell. Or if you remember a book a number of years back, there's a book uh, out very popular for a period of time, The Prayer of Jabez, Jabez. That's another example of the prosperity gospel on display. And you can see the appeal in this type of a gospel, right? I mean, this gospel proclaims healing from disease. It promises wealth and abundance. Who doesn't want that, right? What this gospel promises is something that nearly everyone yearns for. It doesn't matter who they are. And to be fair, there's some truth actually in what this gospel proclaims, if only a sliver. Again, that's how false gospels work. They're not entirely wrong. They, get, they can point to some scripture and back up their claims, even if they're twisting and distorting that scripture and taking it out of context. So, for example, it is true that human beings were made in the image of God to exercise dominion over the earth. And it is true that sin has hindered our ability to exercise that dominion. That much is evident in Genesis 3, even if it's not hindered in the way that prosperity preachers describe. Likewise, it is true that at the cross, Jesus ended sin's curse, and in ending the curse, He established the basis for the eventual abolition of disease and death from the earth. I mean, you look at Matthew 8, for instance, and after Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, Matthew looks ahead at the cross and says that this is one of the things that the cross would do. He paraphrases Isaiah 53, actually, and says, quote, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Jesus' healing anticipated the, tra- the, the transformative effect of the atonement, whereby His bearing of our sin on the cross ends the curse and restores the creation back to a kind of pre-fall state, including the elimination of disease and death. However, there's one major thing that the prosperity gospel gets wrong. And I should probably be clear here, there's actually a lot more than just one thing that's wrong with prosperity theology. In fact, what makes this gospel so different from pretty much every other false gospel that we're going to discuss here over the next couple of weeks is that it's more or less a full-blown theological system. And it's absolutely chock full of error through and through. The other false gospels that we're going to discuss here, they don't have an entire theological system of error to uh, accompany them. In fact, you can find pretty much any of these false gospels, these other ones, in a Southern Baptist church. In other words, these other false gospels can happen just by, by tweaking one or two points, just by overemphasizing or under, underemphasizing one or another doctrine in an otherwise healthy theological system. Many of the preachers of these other Gospels tend to be orthodox in their confessional theology. Again, that's part of what makes them so dangerous. Their error is very subtle. They look very good. Not so the prosperity Gospel. I mean, the way it defines mankind, the atonement, faith, Jesus Christ, even God and Satan, a lot of it is distinctly unorthodox. You can see the error in this system a mile away. That's why it's such a a popular thing to bash these types of preachers. Joel Olstein, right? He's an, a relatively easy target. It's not hard to see the fangs and the fur and the tail in his disguise. The man's a wolf in sheep's clothing and he doesn't hide it very well. I doubt anyone in here is under the sway of the prosperity gospel for just this reason. It's so obviously unorthodox. Even still, I bring the system up because I think if we can understand the main thing that this system gets wrong, then you'll be able to see more clearly why I say the next false gospel on our docket this morning is false. So to recap, the prosperity gospel does get some things partially right. Now when you dig into it, it gets a lot of things really wrong that we just don't have time to address this morning. But I think if you were to kind of skim the very surface of this theology and pick just one thing that it gets wrong, I'd say it's this. Its hope is in this life primarily not in the next. And that's contrary to the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. Understand, it's not wrong to desire blessing. It's not wrong to desire blessing. Some will criticize the prosperity gospel because of its emphasis on the blessing that we receive. They'll say the gospel isn't about us, it's about God and His glory. And that's true, right? God does save us for His own glory. However, that doesn't mean that the gospel isn't still about our blessing and enjoyment at the same time. Fact is, the way that God glorifies Himself in the Scripture is through His grace to us. It's by what He gives to us, despite the fact that we are His enemies. 
We have to get this point very clear if we're going to understand the gospel properly. We are not the giver in our relationship with God. Even when we glorify God through our obedience, which we do when we exercise faith, the whole point is that we trust God to be good to us, even when it's difficult, so that God can then prove Himself faithful and true when He in turn keeps His promise and blesses us through that obedience. You've heard me say this before, but there's really a sense in which we do not glorify God. Rather, God glorifies Himself through us. We have to get this point clear if we're going to avoid falling into one of the other false gospels that we'll explore here in this series. It's not wrong to desire and expect blessing from God. That's actually part of just being a creature. God is glorified, actually, when you look to Him to give you good gifts. This proclaims His power and His wisdom and His goodness and His grace. That's not what the prosperity gospel gets wrong, this expectation of blessing. What the prosperity gospel gets wrong is, in part, the character of this blessing. And I think even more importantly, the timing. Again, the prosperity gospel focus is on physical, material blessing. And that's definitely off, right? Like, how much they emphasize that. That's distorted. I mean, you look at the nature of the curse, as well as the culmination of salvation history, and it's pretty clear that the central blessing of redemption is God returning to dwell with man once more. In fact, that's where all the other blessing comes from, and flows from the fact that the giver of every good and perfect gift dwells among us and is delighted in us. This is part of what prosperity theology gets wrong. We never possess the ability. We never possess the ability to do and create any good thing in and of ourselves. That always comes from God. And what the gospel proclaims is that in removing the guilt of our sin, Jesus reconciles us to God, who is the source and giver of every good and perfect gift. Reconciliation with God is the central hope of the gospel, not physical blessing. However, at the same time, this is not to say that physical prosperity has no part to play at all in the gospel. It's just a matter of when we're to expect it. For example, you go back to the encounter with the rich young ruler. We studied this a few months ago, right? Jesus has this encounter with this rich young ruler where Jesus tells the man that if he wishes to inherit eternal life, then he needs to sell everything he has, give it to the poor, and follow Jesus. The man leaves because he can't do that. He loves his things too much. In the wake of that encounter, Peter notes that he and the rest of the disciples have done what Jesus has asked, and he asks Jesus what they're going to get in return for that sacrifice. He looks for a reward. And what does Jesus say? He says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So, I mean, Jesus actually points to a kind of physical prosperity, but he also makes it clear. This prosperity doesn't come now. It comes, quote, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne. Again, I think this is important. It's not wrong in and of itself to delight in the physical world. Now, greed is wrong. Selfishness, no doubt, is sin. But it's not wrong to delight in what God has made and given you to enjoy. In fact, that's actually called wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes. As long as we receive what we get with thankfulness, worshiping and delighting in the giver over the gift, it's okay to enjoy physical blessing. Neither is it wrong to hope in healing and a physical restoration to the created order. Again, Matthew himself says that Jesus bore our illnesses and disease on the cross. That's part of the hope of the gospel. Jesus came to put an end to the curse, so it's not wrong to hope for healing. We should hope in a world where sin and disease are eliminated. I mean, that's the whole point of the resurrection, right? Death is put to death. What's wrong is to think that prosperity is going to be achieved in this age. Jesus never really promised prosperity in this age for His disciples. I mean, I understand that in Mark's account of the rich young ruler, Jesus promises Peter houses brothers mothers and lands, in this age as well as the one to come. But even then, He promises these things in Mark along with persecutions. And that's really the overwhelming theme of Jesus' preaching. This is not the time of our reward. That time is coming in the future. 
And the message that Jesus communicates consistently is that until that time comes, we have a mission to perform, which is to spread the gospel. And that mission, it's going to require sacrifice and suffering in this age. Because as long as Satan rules over the current order, as long as unbelievers dominate the planet, there's going to be fierce resistance to the gospel. That's why Jesus actually tells the rich young ruler that he has to sell his things and follow him, right? It's not because Jesus doesn't intend to bless his disciples. It's because Jesus has this mission in mind for his disciples to perform in the meantime, and that's going to require that this man leave his current way of life behind, just like Peter and the other 11 disciples did. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples if they follow him, they're going to have this splendid life that's filled with luxury and ease. No, I believe his exact words were, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That's not a message of prosperity, right? That's a message of suffering. Jesus didn't promise ease and comfort now. Instead, he said, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The idea is that there's this trade-off. You try to preserve this earthly life here because, again, you're going to experience difficulty when you follow Jesus. So you try to preserve this earthly life here by not following Jesus, and you're going to lose eternal life. But if you surrender this life for Jesus' sake, it's just the opposite. You gain eternal life. This is how Paul lived, right? You look at the life of Paul, and did did he experience a life of prosperity and ease? I mean, you, you go and you read 2 Corinthians 11, and it's kind of hard to argue that he did, right? Was that because he didn't exercise the right kind of faith? Or that he wasn't faithfully pursuing the Christian life? I mean, absolutely not, right? In fact, the fact is, Paul didn't expect to live a life of luxury. What he did expect, though, was a rich reward in heaven. This is probably best illustrated in his words in Philippians 3, where he writes from prison, actually. He says this, we read this during our call to worship this morning, but I want to read it again, Philippians 3. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies ahead and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upper call of Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Look, Paul didn't live for this life, right? But the next one. He actually expected difficulty and hardship to accompany his mission, but he gladly suffered all of that so that he could participate in the future reward of resurrection from the dead. And you will note that in this passage, he expected everyone who is mature in Christ to think the same way. This, I think, is where the prosperity gospel goes wrong more than anywhere else. It places our hope in this life. It tells us that Jesus died for what we can enjoy here even though the message that Jesus and the apostles seem to be communicating is that our hope isn't here, it's in heaven. And again, this is in addition to all the other things that the prosperity gospel gets wrong. I mean, you want to talk about Job, for instance? Or you want to talk about the the man born blind in John 9? You want proof that suffering isn't always a result of sin? Just look at the blind man in John 9, right? Jesus explicitly tells his Disciples, that this man wasn't blind because of any particular sin that he or his parents performed. He was blind so that God's power could be manifested through him. God often makes his glory known through our suffering. So again, we could go on. There's a lot of things that prosperity theology gets wrong, but I think if we were to just skim the surface and pick one thing that it gets wrong in its proclamation of the gospel, this is where I'd start. The blessings of the gospel it places in this life instead of the next. Now, as I've already stated, I don't doubt, I doubt that 
anyone in here is, is likely to be fooled by the prosperity gospel. It's just, so, it's just so obviously false. But I bring it up because there is a gospel that's very much like the prosperity gospel, and it has become incredibly prevalent in the church. This one's much more subtle than the prosperity gospel. It doesn't commit the same number or degree of doctrinal errors that the prosperity gospel does. And so this false gospel has managed to find a footing even within many confessionally sound churches. In fact, I think if you're prone to find this, this I think you're prone to find this error crop up even in many Southern Baptist churches. And I think once you see what's wrong with the prosperity gospel, it becomes easier to identify the existence and error of this kind of gospel as well. What is, what is this false gospel? I, I, I like the, the terminology that Nine Marks Ministries attaches to it. It is the, quote, soft prosperity gospel. That's the second false gospel on our list today, the soft prosperity gospel. The influence of this false gospel is massive. Whereas the straight-up prosperity gospel is kind of an outlier in Christendom, this diet version of the prosperity gospel has found massive mainstream appeal, even with many historically orthodox churches. In fact, I have a really hard time even describing what this false gospel is. And the reason, first and foremost, is because its influence is so massive, it's become such a normalized part of so many churches' thinking and dialogue that it has become almost indistinguishable from what I think most people think of when they think of Christianity today. That's one reason why I have a hard time describing it. This gospel, I would say, is mainstream Christianity. This is the pop culture gospel. It's most people's baseline, and that makes it very hard to distinguish from genuine Christianity. And then second, this is hard to describe because it's so, so incredibly subtle. Again, I've seen many confessionally orthodox churches who subscribe to this gospel, and it's because what this gospel is, is basically the prosperity gospel, but without all the whacked-out theology about positive confession or Jesus ransoming us from the power of Satan. The people who proclaim this gospel, if you ask them to say, if you ask them to say, what did Jesus die on the cross for? They'll give you a good answer, a theologically sound answer. But then you watch them climb up into the pulpit, and it's basically the same message that the prosperity preacher will preach, only packaged differently. They won't talk about how God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And they won't say that if you have just enough faith and God will prosper you materially. But at the same time, the message is very much about thriving. And thriving specifically here in this life. In fact, I think one of the songs that best captures this idea, and there are many, this is a ubiquitously eminent concept in popular Christian music today, but I think one of the songs that best captures this idea is simply called Thrive. If you've listened to K-Love very much, you've certainly heard it before. It's by a group that I actually tend to like, Casting Crowns. I think Casting Crowns is one of the more solid, popular Christian bands out there. They have a song, Until the Whole World Hears, for instance, that was on repeat on my playlist a few years back. I own their Christmas album. In short, when I say this, I'm not saying they're a bad group. I want to make that clear. Okay? In fact, I don't even think that there's necessarily anything wrong with the song Thrive when you listen to the whole thing in context simply as it's written. However, there's a line in the song which I would actually attribute to much of its popularity. It's right at the end of the chorus. And when you read it, uh, when I read it, I'm, I'm sure most of you will know what song I'm talking about if you haven't recognized it from the title. The end of the chorus goes like this. We were made for so much more than ordinary lives. It's time for us to do more than just survive. We were made to thrive. Does that sound familiar? Now, I may have just stepped on some toes there. <laughs> That's a, that's, a, that's a pretty popular song, so you may be asking yourself, what's wrong with that line? I've listened to that song before. I like it. What's wrong with it? And my answer would be, taken in context, absolutely nothing. Just a few verses before this, this song asks God to fill us with desire to know God and to make Him known. That's what I like about Crasting Crowns. They, they seem to be, to be very Great Commission focused. And if that's what's meant by being made for more than ordinary lives, if what's meant is that we're not just supposed to live ordinary uneventful, comfortable, suburban, middle-class lifestyles that we're supposed to, like Paul, spend ourselves for the sake of the gospel. I think it's a great song. 
I just don't think that's what most people are singing when they're belting that out in their car during their morning commute. I tend to think that what most people hear when they hear that we were meant to do more than just survive, that we were meant to thrive, is the soft, soft prosperity gospel. Under this gospel, God means for us to live a fulfilled, meaningful life, one that's filled with a, this rich tapestry of experiences and emotions. This is the live, laugh, love gospel. It's the one that says, just try Jesus and, and see if He doesn't make your life better. You know, are you struggling with drug addiction? Well, just try Jesus out and see if He doesn't over, help you overcome that. Do you have marriage problems? Well, what you need is Jesus. He can, he can make your marriage thrive. Now again, you may say to yourself, what's wrong with that? Are you saying that Jesus doesn't help us overcome life-dominating sins or that He doesn't want to fix broken marriages? Are you saying that life does not get better under Jesus? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Again, all of those things are true. They're just not the Gospel. At least not in the same sense that Jesus would understand it. This is what's so appealing about this false Gospel. It's mostly right. Again, Jesus does improve our lives, right? In John 10.10, He even says that He came, quote, that they, that is His sheep, that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus even seems to indicate that we will live a richer, more fulfilling life when we turn to Him in faith. That makes sense. It's like I said just a moment ago. God does intend to bless us. So it makes sense that life becomes richer and fuller when when we're in relationship with Jesus Christ. The question, though, is is why is it richer or fuller? Or maybe how is it richer or fuller? It's just like with the the Casting Crown song. It's not wrong as it's written. But whenever I hear someone sing it, I want to know, what do you mean? What do you mean by an extraordinary life? What do you mean by thriving? Are you talking about a life that is spent simply for our own enjoyment of what's in front of us right here and now? Or are you talking about a life in which we come to know God more deeply as we follow in the steps of our Savior and give all that we have in service to Him? Where is your hope? What life are you living for? Is it this one or the next one? So yes, there's a sense in which Jesus did die to free us from drug addiction and and broken marriages. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. I mean, this passage indicates that one of the purposes of Jesus' death on the cross, you could even say the chief purpose, was to free us from the power of sin so that we could serve and worship God forever and ever. Of this, there's no doubt. The question is, is Jesus just a means to a different idol? Is He just a means to this richer, more fulfilled life which occurs when we experience the personal blessing that we receive when we live righteously? Or is He the goal of our salvation? If I could put it this way, is the the reward the restored marriage? Or is the restored marriage a byproduct of the joy that we find in Christ? Because one of those options is a legit way of thinking about Christian thriving. And the other is not. Again, the question is, what life are we living for? Is our hope in this life or the next? Are we hoping for things that are present here on this earth only? Or is our hope in Christ? Because you see, someone like Paul, he can thrive in this life. Even as he sits in prison. He can have deep joy and write as he does in Philippians 4 that he's learned the secret of being content in every situation, both in plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And he can say in Romans 8.28 that God causes all things to work together for good for Christ's disciples and say that while experiencing the hardships that he writes about in 2 Corinthians 11. And the reason, once again, is because he has learned to fix all of his hope on what lies ahead of him at the return of Christ. Paul's not living for this life. He lived for the next one. And that's how he thrived here in this life. As God used even the suffering that he experienced as he poured himself out for Christ to draw him into a closer and closer and more rewarding relationship with Christ. Going back to what I said in our discussion of the prosperity gospel, we have to remember that as much as Jesus promises this abundant life, 
He also promises a cross. And far from saying that our reward is going to be here in this life, He says that His disciples are going to actually have to lose this life in order to gain the next one. There's a kind of loss that Jesus' disciples are going to experience here and now. And it's actually through this loss through these things that they surrender as these these idols are taken away, that they're going to gain this deep, abounding joy. Which again comes as, as more and more of their sin, more and more of their idolatrous desires are purged from their thinking, and as they learn to trust more and more in Christ through their suffering. So the, again, the question is, in which gospel have you believed? Have you believed in a gospel that places your hope in the things of this world, in this age, or the next? You know, I think there's a very simple way to get down to the heart of this question, to reveal the deeper thoughts and desires of your heart as it relates to Jesus and His kingdom. Of course, it's one thing to know the right answer to these questions, right? And it's another thing to actually believe the right answer, uh, to have the truth applied at the heart. And part of the problem with our hearts is that they're so inclined to sin and unrighteousness that we'll often even deceive ourselves in order to preserve our unbelief. It's hard for us at times to even understand the thoughts and intentions of our own hearts. We're absolutely blind to our own sin until someone points it out to us very often. And that can be the case here. It's possible to say, you know, I know that I'm supposed to desire the kingdom of heaven, but how do I know that that's actually my hope? How do I know whether my hope is in this life or the next? And this is how I'd answer that question. Ask yourself, if Jesus came back right now, what would I think? How would I feel? If Jesus came back today, right at this instant, would you be excited? Is that something you'd be looking forward to? Or would you be disappointed? Like, what would your gut reaction be? If the answer to that question is disappointed, then ask yourself why. Because I think there's a measure of godliness in in, in wanting the Lord to tarry, if that means the salvation of souls. That's why God Himself chooses to delay His coming. He desires all of His people to enter into the kingdom, and so He delays His judgment for their salvation. That's a legit reason to say, wait just a little bit longer, Lord. There's people that I know and love that don't know Christ yet, and I want them to know Christ. But if the reason is because there are things here that you want to enjoy, which you think, the return of Christ is going to mess up, then that may very well be an indication that your hope is in the wrong thing, that you may simply see Jesus as a means to your idolatry. I'm not saying that the answer to this question is foolproof. I just think it's very telling. So, if that would be your response, if you're disappointed by the return of Christ, then I would strongly encourage you Again, as Paul urges the Corinthians, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Make sure that the message you've believed is the one that Jesus proclaimed. Make sure that you have not been inoculated with either either one of these false gospels unaware. Next week, we're going to continue to explore false gospels in the third part of this message. At this point, I'm not just to be honest. I'm not really sure how long we're going to be exploring this topic together. This passage was supposed to be a one-week message, and now we're already going in. To three, and we've only covered two of the nine false gospels that are prevalent today. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm going to do what I can to keep moving and finish this message next week. But I, I, to tell you the truth, I just don't know, and I don't want to rush this because these this is important. This is very important that you understand the distinction between the gospel that Christ proclaimed and many of these false gospels that are out there. So we'll see. We'll see how far we get next week. In the meantime, I'd invite you to come back tonight to continue to discuss the topic together. I'd especially encourage you to come back if you think that you have believed a false gospel because we'll discuss what you can do about that. We'll talk about what to do if you do not long for the kingdom of heaven. So if that's where you're at, come back and listen in on that discussion and learn what you can uh, do about that. Until then, let's close with prayer. Let's pray.